0: machine learning and healthcare podcast. I'm your host, Neil Daly. I'm the founder of Skin Analytics. Uh, We're a company that uses machine learning to diagnose skin cancer. And I've asked Dr. James Samaru of HS Ventures to come join me and help me set up this podcast and figure out how to get all this information we want to share and explore across to you in a nice little way.
1: In healthcare, we see a lot, don't we, from radiology, for example, there are there a are lot of very specific applications, whether it's looking at prostate MRs or chest CTs or all these different things. And obviously there's you guys in dermatology and lots of other things going on. Where do you think the low-hanging fruit is in terms of the biggest gains to be? Well, I guess, yeah, Where where are the quickest gains to be made, the easiest gains to be made? And what's... The long game here what are the really big things that ai machine learning can do in healthcare
0: so i think uh, i'm going to start the backwards and answer mm. the second part and then move to, to the first part you know i think the the long-term future for uh, machine learning and healthcare is really about collecting huge amounts of data from many different fields you know when you start practically collecting your heart rate across different times in the day and you can start to to really drill down on a number of different physiological factors that can help identify trends which can then be intervened before they become problems but that is a hugely hugely complex field you're talking about multiple different senses you're talking about a huge amount of data coming in you're talking about knowing how to analyze that data and being able to pick out the relevant information and that's years away. That's sort of the dream people have about how you can use, use machine learning. Uh, rather than relying on doctors to try and, in a 10 minute consultation, pick out really salient points of the patient's history and identify key issues and sort of a needle in a haystack, if you like, um, really collecting that data proactively. Um, but what you I think is immediately obvious is there's a huge amount of challenge in the complexity on doing that but also how you build the systems to do it how do you validate it works how do you get the regulators comfortable that you've assessed the risk and you've covered it off Mm. Um, and i think what we're seeing now is that the early focus are these much more targeted specific algorithms and that's important to to say because the machine learning industry Uh, specifically in our field where you're looking at image analytics and in most fields that that any progress is being made in healthcare, is really based on uh, deep learning and deep learning only really came into its own in 2012 to 2013 so we're kind of eight years old into this industry and at the very beginning of any industry things get developed in a very generic way and then the next phase of any industry is really targeted specific understanding in an area and then you can bring it back up and where we are with healthcare or or machine learning right now rather is we're at the stage where a lot of people are taking the generic approaches that were developed only eight years ago and trying to apply them to specific areas and then you've got a handful of companies that have been doing it for long enough that have understood that those generic approaches don't work and have had started again from first principles and built things from the ground up and you see it in radiology you see it in dermatology with us Uh, and you see it in a number of different areas. And I think that's one of the most incredibly powerful areas. And where we need to apply it, are the areas where we're really starting to see uh, significant blockages in healthcare. So radiology is one. We know that radiology is struggling to recruit trainees uh, in the US, for example. We know that it's an area where um, it's a hugely complex and hugely difficult area to train people in. Uh, And so radiology is, is one of the first areas Dermatology similarly has a huge issue. We're 25% down on dermatologists in the UK. In the US that's 50% down. So there's a real shortage of dermatologists and and there's a huge increase in skin cancer globally. So these areas are real choke points for delivering care. And what's particularly interesting and and where I think dermatology uh, sort of stands out against disciplines like radiology is that dermatology is practiced in secondary care But the real challenge is how do we deliver it in primary care? Because dermatology, you don't need expensive equipment to look at it, which you have to put in a hospital just from a capex perspective. Dermatology requires visual analytics of a problem, either using your eyes or using an image. And that gives us a unique opportunity to take what has traditionally only been able to be done in hospital by dermatologists that you've trained for 15 years, and then put it into the hands of GPs and give the GPs the ability to be as good as those hospital trained dermatologists because they have this tool to help them. And I think that is one of the incredibly important aspects here, because as we talked about at the beginning, this explosion of data that's available to clinicians, that's magnified for the people on the front line. If you're a primary care doctor, you're trying to pick a needle out of a haystack. And if you're trying to do that um, across Thousand or tens of different disciplines, you know, from cancer through to, you know, all the other different things that uh, primary care doctors are picking up every day. You're now trying to be experts in a huge number of different fields. And the idea that you could be a specialist in general practice is just absurd these days. So I think machine learning really has an opportunity, uh, especially when you can start to bring these specialisms closer to the community and Mm. closer
1: to patients. And so, obviously, there's this. you described very eloquently a lot of the kind of the, the process wins there and a lot of high level stuff i mean you're a mathematician by background so in terms of some of the numbers around this you know practically speaking okay let's take dermatology we know that there are a load of appointments we know that there are a load of referrals for potential skin cancers we know that puts dermatologists under ludicrous amounts of pressure what do those numbers look like, and where, you know how much of a of a win can machine learning be in dropping those numbers and, and practically helping out the system, so to speak?
0: Yeah, it's it's a great question, um, and you know we obviously do a lot of thinking about this. Uh, if you take the King's Fund here in the UK, they've done some research that suggests that about one in five uh, GP appointments is to do with something on the skin. Uh, And then we've kind of done some analysis with various sort of research bodies ourselves, and we think there's around 15 million GP appointments each year for skin cancer. Now, that number's not typically focused on, what the number gets focused on is how many referrals go to secondary care, which is somewhere between half a million and a million uh, each year. Um, But what gets lost is how many people get screened out at the primary care level, and that's what we need to congratulate our doctors for doing. And to give you a sense of how difficult their job is, that those 15 million appointments are to find just about 160,000 cancers. And of those 160,000 cancers, only 10% of them are going to turn out to be the, the serious ones, the aggressive melanoma that have such bad outcomes for patients, especially the later that you find them. And all cancers, you get better outcomes the sooner you find them. But melanoma skin cancer is a particularly aggressive cancer, and the earlier you find it, even by weeks, can have a significant difference in the outcome for the patient. So, if you put that into real world terms, um, if a patient or if a GP rather sees a hundred patients, they're likely to find one skin cancer, but they'll need to go through a thousand patients to find a melanoma. So, how do you train a GP? To be able to say no to 999 people and yes to the one that Mm. has a suspicious lesion when the difference between a benign lesion and a malignant lesion is still one where dermatologists struggle to make that difference so let me give you another data point here we run a teledermatology service and we do a lot of work on uh, ensuring the quality of our service And at one point, we had disagreement between our dermatologists as high as 40%. So what I mean by that is, we'd send an image to one dermatologist and uh, roughly 10% of our cases we audit. So we'd send it in parallel to another dermatologist and they'd come back with different responses. And then we'd have to send it off to a third dermatologist to decide what the appropriate next step was. And, you know, we know there's disagreement in healthcare because healthcare is just grey and it's complex. But to find out that dermatologists were disagreeing 40% of the time was quite surprising to us. So that level of complexity in identifying skin lesions, and then we go to a GP who hasn't got the same level of training and say, out of a 1,000 people you see, you have to find the one that has the cancer. It's a pretty tough ask. Mm.
1: And so realistically then by machine learning going in so what my understanding then is what you're saying is you're you're allowing that you're giving those gps the confidence both to say yes and no and that's what the software can do so how how easy is it to give this software to a clinician so that a they trust it or b that it sort of integrates with what they do i mean you're clearly passionate about solving this problem and building the technology with your background but i imagine a significant part of, of, of your job as a as stock founder of this company is actually getting this stuff adopted right and getting it slotting in and actually working how do you do that
0: yeah it's a really another really interesting question and I think uh, what I'd like to do is sort of take it back and remind people of the stage that we're at and this is the, one of the key questions that that a lot of healthcare providers and clinicians on the ground have is you know, how do we know we can trust this uh, technology? And if I were to, to throw out some other numbers, I mentioned to you that uh, deep learning is only eight years old, really. Um, and in fact, people took some time to get started developing it. Um, and if you put that into context, a drug that gets developed for the healthcare system typically takes 12 years to develop and they spend a billion pounds on it. No one has spent anywhere near that much money on developing these deep learning systems. And so... The, the industry is very early, very nascent. And because of that, that building the trust with the clinicians is incredibly important. And I think that we need to be more critical about how we assess these AI systems and these machine learning systems that are out there in the market. You know, every day you see another article saying it beat clinicians doing this, it beat clinicians doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you dig into the, the way the studies were set up and the way that the, the clinicians were tested, it's not necessarily the case that it was so clear cut. And it's not necessarily the case that there's much, uh, I guess, trust from the clinicians uh, that this is actually going to be what happens in the real world. And so, you know, I think that the first thing that we have to do is really build out the clinical evidence that's behind it do a better job at telling clinicians uh, what has been done, what hasn't been done, um, and what the evidence is saying. Because from my perspective, when we started talking to doctors, we just assumed that they were really great at reading clinical papers and understanding them. But what we forget is that doctors are quite scientific by background, but they don't actually get that much training in statistics, for example. I think it's about four hours of training they get in statistics. It's
1: it's definitely... Around that number, yeah, and that's that's just before you sit the statistics exam that you would do that four hours.
0: <laughs> We've had four-hour arguments in the office about what a number means. So you know, I don't, I don't feel like that uh, that's enough time to, to really get into the the nitty gritty of this. And I think that's probably what the challenge is. Mm. We have to um, we have to get better at, at helping people understand what the evidence says. And there are some really major um, uh, sort of backlash. Uh, Um, efforts really growing from some leaders in this space that are starting to say yeah but what does that really mean and what does that AI really tell us and you know is that the full story and it's up to us as innovators to help keep that conversation moving forward and keep people, uh, educate people about what the difference in the evidence that is that's out there. Uh, and we do a lot of that now. We spend a lot of time uh, helping people break down what our study says and why it's important. And, and a lot of the little nuances that came out of our study, the way we designed it, that can give clinicians confidence that what we say is happening is actually happening. And then there's the second part of that question, which I'm going to kick down the, the road, uh, because, you know, I think getting clinicians to trust what you say over and above whether or not they trust the system works, but when you give them a specific output is something that we're doing a lot of work in. Um, and I want to set up a specific session where we can dive into what we learned, what we haven't. But um, we've set up a machine learning advisory committee and one of our researchers who are joining that, a professor um, from UCL, is really focused on how do you present information uh, back to uh, back to people to get them to trust artificial intelligence, not specifically in the healthcare sector. But we also have a project, which is why I want to set up a specific session on this, uh, with Imperial College, where they're doing roundtables with with doctors, with GPs. Mm. And we're trying out loads of different ideas and trying to figure out with them, what is it that helps them understand or feel comfortable with what we're saying? And then what are they going to do after they see that? So if I say, hey, look, this is a melanoma, do they actually believe us and take the action as if it was? Or do they overrule us? Mm. Uh, And I think that it'd be quite an interesting discussion to dive into that.
1: And to hear us dive into that, you can head over to episode three, where you can catch the next part of myself and Neil Daly in conversation.